The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. Sometimes we're embarrassed by people who believe like we believe, aren't we? This kind of embarrassment is, is a, a fact of life, not only for religious people, but also for non-religious people. In 1980, two UW uh, professors of sociology uh, ran a survey. They did a study of 1,400 University of Washington undergraduates uh, surveying their beliefs. And what they found were that, was that uh, irreligious students were three times more likely than the most religious students to place great value in tarot reading, seances, and psychic healing. They also found that two-thirds of irreligious students agreed that UFOs are probably real spaceships from other worlds, uh, compared to with only 40% of the most religious students. In, in other words, the, the skeptics among, among the student body were most likely to believe in the occult and in some of the bizarre things, what we normally consider some of the bizarre things like uh, UFOs, Bigfoot, etc., they conclude, uh, these two researchers conclude their article with this sentence. Those who hope that a decline in traditional religion would inaugurate a new age of reason ought to think again. Now, had this article been published in something like the Journal of Religion or Christianity today, uh, this probably would have been well received and somehow validating, but... Unfortunately, the article that printed these results was called Skeptical Inquirer. And if you go to their website, you find that Skeptical Inquirer describes themselves as the magazine for science and reason. And they go on, for a fast-growing number of discriminating persons, the Skeptical Inquirer is a welcome breath of fresh air, separating fact from myth in the flood of occultism and pseudoscience on the scene Today, and, and the editors of this journal received scores of uh, letters from their readers, frankly embarrassed that they had run this study in a journal dedicated to this kind of uh, scientific inquiry. It was an embarrassment to them. Well, such embarrassment is not limited to irreligious people. As you know, we religious people are uh, equally liable to similar embarrassment. And Matthew, in his gospel, as he begins this great story, the triumph of the Davidic king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, seems to go out of his way to begin with stories that, frankly, would embarrass us. It has an authenticating quality to it. But we're embarrassed not just by our failure, not just by our uh, dysfunction or scandal, but here in the text before us this morning... By our spiritualities. Let's look together at Matthew uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you're visiting, you'll find that uh, on page 783 in the black book in, in front of you. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now Jesus will appear on the scene, and Matthew sets before us, uh, the hearers or the readers of this gospel, two characters. There's a scribe and there's a magi. 
And I want you to look for these two characters as I read and ask yourself the question, do you find anything slightly embarrassing in either of them? The word of the Lord through the words of Matthew. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, a wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star. They had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. So a scribe and a magi, do you find either of them at least slightly embarrassing? Let's look at the scribe first. A scribe is somebody who has facts about God's written word. He's a person with a book, isn't he? I mean, back before Twitter and blogs and iPods and uh, Amazon's, whatever, the Kindle, you know, back in the day when communication occurred at the speed of a quill, the way that uh, texts were reproduced was, as you know, manually. By scribes. The scribes were the people that spent their whole day with the sacred scripture. And they would lay out uh, a sheet of parchment from a scroll next to another one upon which God's word had been written. And they would, word for word, to, the, to painstakingly, to the extent of actually counting the letters on each page to make sure nothing had dropped out, reproduce uh, scripture. It was a scribe's job. And because a scribe did that all day long, who better... To then ascribe to instruct people in the meaning of God's word. 
And so the scribes were oftentimes in Israel at this time the teachers of Israel, the teachers of the law. And of course, when you got stuck and you had a question, you, you, you wanted a, a judicial ruling, who better than a teacher to bring your problem to? After all, very conversant with God's law. And so we find oftentimes in the New Testament that the scribes are referred to as lawyers. And that's what's meant by a lawyer. It's somebody who studied God's law, who uh, copied it on a daily basis. Well, now Herod has a question. These strangers have come into town and they've been asking about a king of the Jews. Uh, and Herod knows he's got a, only a very tenuous grasp on that claim himself. And it makes him a little nervous. And so he takes his question to whom? To a scribe. Would you go and get a scribe? And he says, where is the Messiah to be born? It doesn't seem to take them very long to return the answer. You don't get the sense they go into the back stacks of classic wax and blow off the dust. They say, Bethlehem. Well, that's the place. Bethlehem is the birthplace of the greatest kings. The King David was born in Bethlehem, so will the son of David be born. And they conflate two uh, scriptural passages from Micah 5 and 2 Samuel 5. And they give us this uh, verse 6. Well, what's so embarrassing about the scribes then? I mean, they, if we read the story, they, they give us the right answer, don't they? Bethlehem is indeed where the Messiah is born. And Matthew makes a rather big deal about the fact that the Messiah is rather predictably um, uh, expressed. That is, that he fulfills all of the prophecies. Matthew will quote the Old Testament 55 times throughout his gospel. I mean, a, a chunk of scripture. And then he'll oftentimes refer to that as a fulfillment. Jesus says he has fulfilled the law. And so this seems to be a really good answer. But those of us who will continue reading the gospel will know that Matthew doesn't have a very high view of scribes. They're mentioned a lot. And yet, never with uh, much flattery. Jesus will say, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. No, and Jesus will also predict that it will be the scribes and the chief priests, the very same group whom Herod consults, who will ultimately condemn Jesus and to whom he will be handed over for a crucifixion. Well, they, they have a book and they have their answers, but they have no savior in Jesus Christ. For you see, these scribes, this is a hint of this here, that while the Magi, once they get the answer from the scribes in their book, they leave Jerusalem in search of this king. But the scribes stay behind. They stay within the walls of the holy city with their book. We turn to the Bible for all sorts of reasons. On Christmas Eve, we pull it out for stories of inspiration. It's a beautiful thing. Sometimes on a business trip, we open the drawer between the two beds and there's that book. And we pull it out for meaning. Sometimes in life, we get stuck. A crisis has come to us that we don't anticipate and we find ourselves needing direction. And there is this book. So we, so we open it, hoping that it will guide us. 
Sometimes we look for moral clarity in the book, for this is an ambiguous age, and we want to know how we should live and what choices are the ones that God will smile upon. Sometimes we study it with an academic interest. We bring the tools of the academy and Sunday school classes and fellowships and Bible studies. We gather a lot of facts from the book, a lot of information, all of its rules. And yet, friends, do we come to know its author? Do we find ourselves not simply reading, but meeting the very living God himself? A.W. Tozer, the Canadian pastor, wrote in his book, The Pursuit of God, the modern scientist has lost God amid the wonders of his world. We Christians are in real danger of losing God amid the wonders of his word. We have almost forgotten that God is a person and as such can be cultivated, as any person can. Religion, so far as it is genuine, is the, in essence the response of created personalities to the creating personality, God. The continuous and unembarrassed exchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed human is the throbbing heart of the New Testament religion. So Jesus would speak to the scribes of his day as he speaks to us. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they who testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. The first time our family came to, to preach with you, uh, somebody generously offered their home, a family in the midst of the congregation here, whom we had never met. But you can learn a lot about uh, somebody from uh, spending some time in their home, can't you? Rifling through their personal effects. No, I'm just... I'm <laughs> walking around the house. You know, you open the refrigerator and there are certain foods, the organic foods are there. You know, you go into the children's room, you count the beds, you know how many kids. You see the pictures on the wall, the, the uh, photograph of that uh, water flume and the faces... You know, uh, you see on the wall there, we, uh, there was a covenant, it's a homeschool family, and there were rules there uh, of the house. And it was very impressive. I stood all of our kids right there and made them read <laughs> these multicolored rules. But after spending a few days in that house, we left, and the couple had not returned from their vacation. And we never met them. We knew a lot about them. We felt very comfortable in that house. But it wasn't until... A couple of weeks later in Larson Hall that we actually met these family. A very different kind of experience. Where we get very comfortable in God's word. We know facts about God. This is scribal spirituality. It's when you can have the right answers, but end up in the wrong place and miss the whole point. Well, if a scribe is, is someone with facts about God's written word, person with a book, a magi is someone with facts about God's created world, a person with a star. Well, who, who are the magi? First of all, let's dispel a few uh, misconceptions about them. We don't know that there were three uh, magi. All we're told is that there is plural word. There were more than one, so at least two. The, re, the, the, the Three is an inference from the number of gifts 
You know, it's sort of man-to-man defense, I guess. There are three gifts, so there must have been three magis, you know. Uh, no reason to believe that. could be a company of magis. Another thing we don't know about them is that we don't know that they're kings. There are prophecies in Isaiah 60, the nations will come and kings of the brightness of your rising. Psalm 72, foreign kings will bring gifts and bow low before the king of Israel. But we don't know that these prophecies are fulfilled in this incident. Uh, they may yet to be fulfilled. So we're not sure that they're kings. Another thing that's extremely, extremely doubtful is that the ancient Israelite, the Jew of the first century, or Matthew's original audience, would ever, ever, ever have thought of these as wise men. These are magi. Maybe somewhere in the world someone thinks of them as wise men. But Dorothy, you're in Israel now. We read the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see condemnations of the kinds of sorcery, the dark arts, the practices of the Magi. We see ridicule. The Magi, we're told, come from the East. Herodotus will write in the 5th century of these, um, these court magicians who interpret dreams, Zoroastrians, the Persians and the Medes. And remember, there's a very large Jewish community in Babylon, residual there from the Babylonian exile. So it's very likely that these came from Babylon, where they may have lived in the swirl of rumor and hope and yearning for the fulfillment of these prophetic expectations. <laughs> and they think, oh, we could just apply our arts and sciences to those, and maybe we can go meet the king. Surely the heavens will tell us. And so they're on this uh, journey. Paul will actually meet a Magi in his ministry. We read about Acts 13. He's on Cyprus. And there's a Magi who's trying to blind prospective converts to the gospel. And Paul doesn't think this is cool. So he says to them, uh, he says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You know, Paul doesn't have a lot of warmth in his heart for the Magi. And I suspect... That's rather uh, typical for a Jew in this day. And so, how do you explain this rather large embarrassment, seems to me, that the first audience of the new king, a group of spiritually confused magicians, and here they are. They find themselves... In the right place. They've got all the wrong answers, but they're in the right place. How could it happen? Well, you and I, friends, live in a time when uh, we have a growing awareness of the world religions around us. They're, They're actually at our doorstep, aren't they? And we have a growing appreciation, thankfully, for those religious traditions. We appreciate their cultural artifacts. We appreciate practices that come out of those traditions. We even acknowledge the truthfulness, and we're taught and instructed by some who come from different religious traditions than we do. But somewhere deep down inside, there's a little bit of anxiety about that, isn't there? Well, how true can these other religions be if Jesus is the ultimate revelation of divinity, the creator of all that is? A little bit nervous about that. The story about uh, a Presbyterian, a Hindu, and a Jew who are off to an ecumenical conference, interfaith dialogue, and along the way they spend the night and there's a, a farm. They knock on the farmer's door and he says, yeah, come on in. Only have two beds, so one of you will have to sleep in the barn. 
And so the Hindu volunteers and heads out to the barn and they bed down for the night. But in the middle of the night, there's a knock at the door and the farmer opens the door and it's, it's the Hindu. He says, you know, I cannot sleep in the barn. There's a cow in there. And so the Jew says, well, you come on in. You can have my bed. And the Jew goes out to the barn. Later that night, there's a knock on the door. You know, I can't sleep in the barn. There's a pig in the barn. And uh, so they say, you know, the Presbyterian is going to have to go out. So the Presbyterian goes out to the barn and beds down. Lo and behold, later in that night, there's a knock on the door. And there's a pig and a cow at the door. <laughs> We're just not real well known for getting along with folks. And we have a suspicion that these people who are neighbors and friends and professors oftentimes, they seem to be on to something, don't they? What does it mean to hold to the confession of Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, but also to acknowledge the validity of some of these other traditions? Do we have to say everything is true? Do we have to say everything is false? I don't think so. And I think this text points the way. There are three affirmations that I want to give you here very briefly that help us to understand how it is that these magi find their way to the right place with the wrong answers. The first one is that all human beings are made to worship God. All of us. We get that at the very beginning of the biblical story in Genesis chapter 2 when God takes a scoop of soil from the earth and he invigorates it by blowing into the nostrils his breath, the very spirit of God bringing it to life with this kind of spirituality that has its only answer in the divinity of God. We are soulish people, all of us across the world. We ought not to be surprised when we see anthropologists who study human beings across the planet and throughout throughout time revealing that human beings are essentially religious people, that we find ourselves engaged in worship, of various kinds. The Apostle Paul, when he comes into Athens, the great academy of the Hellenistic world, the Areopagus, to debate with the philosophers of his day, he's troubled as he sees idols as he enters the city. And they recognize the foreignness of his teaching. They say, this is a foreign babbler. And yet Paul begins by saying, you know, I noticed when I came in here a shrine with an inscription And it said, to an unknown God. It's interesting. And I come to bring you the name of that whom you have worshipped in times of ignorance. So all human beings are made to worship. Paul go on to say, we're made in him. We're appointed to exist where we do that we might grope and indeed find God, our creator. The second affirmation is that all humans ask questions of God's creation. We're all in the same place, and we ask questions about this place, and it gives us signs. An astrologer, that word astrology comes from two Greek words, aster for star and logos for word or meaning. And we all ask the big questions of life, don't we? What's the meaning of all this? Life is littered with trauma and and disappointment and pain and sorrowing and justice. And yet we see enough beauty in it all to speculate that this is not the last word, that there must be more somewhere. And so we we look heavenward to the stars and beyond for meaning. We're all astrologers in that sense. 
There's very little difference in this day between astronomer and astrologer. Namos, Greek word for law, the law of the stars, the regulated motion of the, uh, of the cosmos. So these are, as much as they're uh, spiritualists, they're also scientists. And I like the point that John Polkinghorne, who is the uh, quantum physicist and Anglican priest, won the 2002 uh, Templeton Award, says that you know, both the, the theologian and the scientist share a common endeavor. And uh, Polkinghorne calls that critical realism, asking questions, critical, but knowing that there is a there there. There is a reality that we both probe. All humans ask questions of God's creation. The third affirmation is that all humans enjoy common grace. Jesus himself will say, be like your heavenly father. You know, he sends the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous, the sun to shine on both the evil and the good. This is called common grace as God restrains evil in society. And he allows us to work for the common good to bring forth cultural uh, gifts that sustain the race. So all humans are made to worship God, to ask questions of God, and to enjoy common grace. Again, A.W. Tozer. He says, it's my own belief, and here I shall not feel bad if no one follows me, that every good and beautiful thing which human beings have produced in the world has been the result of his faulty and sin-blocked response to the creative voice sounding over the earth. The moral philosophers who dream their high dreams of virtue the religious thinkers who speculated about God and immortality, the poets and the artists who created out of common stuff pure and lasting beauty. How can we explain them? It's not enough to say simply it was genius. What then is this genius? Could it be that a genius is a person haunted by the speaking voice, laboring and striving like one possessed to achieve ends which they only vaguely understand? That the great person, the genius, may have missed God in their labors, that they may even have spoken or written against God, does not destroy the idea that I am advancing. Jesus is not a universalist. Matthew knows that Jesus will teach that the, the way to life is a narrow gate and the path to destruction is broad. Anyone who's ever climbed a mountain, knows that all paths do not lead to the top of a mountain. Some lead off of cliffs. And yet, here we find the story of Jesus, the incarnation of God, beginning with such embarrassing spirituality, scribal spirituality, magi spirituality, facts from a book, facts from a star. It's embarrassing because one knows, uh, one does not know what it should and the other for knowing what it should not. Why does God come in this way? Notice Matthew, he doesn't validate these false spiritualities. He doesn't commend them either. I think the reason is that he wants us to be very clear that God comes to us even as we are people who do not have all the answers, who are not spiritually composed as we should. He's quite comfortable with you and me and all of our falsehoods and all of our emptiness and all of our misguided piety. It's not the book, but the one who fulfills its promises. It's not the star, but the one who moves it and who causes it to stop nowhere other than over the child himself.
It's the one who comes from beyond the stars to be born beneath this star to whom we must turn. This one who sleeps as a babe in Bethlehem. As I close, I want to give you two implications for this reflection. The first is uh, to end your search. End your search. We're told that the journey is the goal. That, to me, it seems like a, a slogan for somebody who's not yet found a goal. And these, these magi find. It says when the stars stop, it's emphatic. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They fell on their faces, and then they bowed to the child. What a great time, this Advent, to come to know the living God, to bow before this child. I like the way Bruce Larson, our pastor emeritus, said, you know, when a man and a woman come to the altar, they're not asked, do you agree? They're asked, do you commit? You have to say, not I consent, not I agree, but you say, I do, to bow before the king. Perhaps it's time for you to do so. The other is, uh, implication is that I, w- I would invite you, as this text does, I think, to join somebody else's journey. Somebody else, like us, is journeying. There's a yearning in these magi. There's a quest. There's a longing to have answers. They may not show it on their face. They may not acknowledge it to you. But join them. Walk alongside of, of your neighbor. And yes, you do so with, with great respect and acknowledging their dignity, even learning from them in the process. But knowing that all the while there is that speaking voice, there is that voice of the Spirit calling towards this child, Jesus Christ. And you and I can participate in their ability to hear that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from above through your hands to us. The heavens declare the handiwork and your law is perfect and beautiful. It restores health to the soul. But both speak to us most clearly, not about facts, but about a person who has come to sweep us into embrace. Grant that we might know that embrace this day that we too might fall on our faces and bow before the King with joy exceedingly great. In his name we pray. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.